We're going to continue in the book of John, 1 John, and our journey to and through what I would describe as authentic Christianity, real life, touchable, feelable, seeable belief in Jesus Christ. Let me read the scripture for you, found in 1 John 2nd chapter, verses 15 through 17. It says this, this is the word of God. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. That the man who does the will of God lives forever. That was the word of God. John is obviously taking us on what I would describe as somewhat of a roller coaster ride. Last week, John in the scripture encouraged us to love. And this week, the word of God through John tells us not to love, to don't love the world. And, and for those new to or wary of Christianity or scared of what it means to be a Christian in the minds of people, this may seem like the bay, uh-oh, the real secret of mean religious people is alive and well in this passage in John. That there is this calling, you know, that secret Christian monastic calling to, to don't drink or smoke or dance or watch movies or TV or hang out with those evil people. That those things live on is, is John saying we need to continue in this justified hate that, that made Christians the world's best slave owners and imperialist and, and opportunistic capitalists that overlooked the downtrodden. Is that what John is encouraging here? Is John encouraging a, a self-righteous, holier-than-thou pacifism or, or an onward Christian soldier's a hostile but holy war with the world? Let me say, I hope not. Personally, I hope not. And I don't believe that our Lord, the one who was accused of not being holy of not being a good Bible teacher, much less the Son of God, for being uh, in the wrong place with all the wrong people, fits in with the caricature of hateful or disengaging or otherwise warful Christianity. No, no, John is not talking about or, or leading us to just another hypocritical expression that we put the Christian label on. No, no, staying true to the theme of this book, John is taking us, yes, on a journey, a heart and life check to discover and for some of us to rediscover authentic Christianity. Now, with the scriptures, especially the earlier writings of John in this gospel, clearly declaring that God, what, so loved the world, how does don't love the world fit into authentic Christianity with a Lord and mission of love for the world? Here it is. World has so many meanings. You know what world means here? World. It just means 
world. It's it's fairly generic, but by process of elimination, it, we can see that it's not exclusively about the people of the world, as in, don't love the people in this world. That is not what John is saying here. Or exclusively in this context, the natural world, as in, don't love the trees or the plants or the, or the stuff that you get from them. Go burn them down. Go cut them down like Mr. T did. No, that's not what he's talking about. Which leaves this as the meaning John is using here. Don't love the system of thinking that is anti-heaven. Heaven as opposed to world. God's kingdom as opposed to this kingdom. The anti-God redemption thinking. An anti-creational dignity and worth sort of thinking. Don't love that. Don't love the world. I get... Sometimes I, I, I know I got in trouble once in seminary for using too many football illustrations, but I'll use this one. <laughs> Panther fans don't love the rest of the NFL. And it does not mean hate or kill the players or step on their heads and make them have to have stitches. And it does not mean uh, or hate the city or fans that wear the jerseys. Not saying take up arms against the person challenging you in the NFC South. That's not what he's saying. But yes, do not love a team whose goal and stand is to stop your team from getting to the big game. Don't love them over and against your own team. And we understand John here better because it truly wouldn't make sense if I went to the game and says, I'm a Panther fan, but boy, I love the Saints and stood up among the rest of the Panther fans and said it. It just wouldn't make sense. I really love the Patriots. I really love the Falcons. No, it just doesn't happen. John is saying don't love the world and systems that are teamed up against your belief and ability to know God that is lined up against God whose goal is to redeem and love you and calls you to redeem and love the world's people around you. It is safe to say that you can't love the world if you love the world. If you love a system a belief that is anti-redemption, that is anti-unconditional love. How can you love the world if you love that sort of thinking? With that said, and with the groundwork laid already, already that authentic Christianity, real living faith in Jesus is seen in our actions. John just has really been hitting us. Actions, actions, actions. He kind of turns this thing over into grease, you know? He's going to cook the other side. And he's saying, he's calling you and me not to love the world. He is doing a heart check on the actions. He is saying that we need to look at our heartbeat. What is our drive? What is our passion? What are the things that we really love? And in this passage, he's calling us to authentic and real relationship with God and people by challenging our worldliness, our split allegiance, our religious and philosophical two-timing on the gospel. And he makes it a matter of three areas where we'll pay attention today. Number one, the motivations. Number two, the mission. And number three, the message of our lives. What are they really? But then he he turns us back, of course, towards Jesus. And he calls us to actually look at the motivation, mission, and message of God for you 
and me. Now, John gives us the big three worldly motivations or lust here in, 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 in verse 16. He says, for everything in the world. Now, he names it. The cravings of the sinful man. The lust of the flesh, verse 16 says. And the boasting of what he has and does, which translated well means longings. Lust means drives. And each one of these longings could have a sermon. Or a series of sermons or talks or papers on them. But we will look at them in short first. And we see this first one. The cravings. Of the sinful man. Now scripture has another way of saying the same thing. And some translations say it this way. The lust of the flesh. Man, it sounds like one of old school sermons. The lust of the flesh in the body. You know, he is saying, what does it mean? Don't look for or be motivated by getting a physical blanket for the coldness you feel inside. A feeding of your body for the emptiness you really feel inside. You know, the defibrillator, a shock to your body or brain through whatever way you see a movie, a shocking horror movie or, or some other kind of thing or, or food or, or fantasy or whatever it is. Don't put a shock to the body and brain and expect it to take care of the bland, boring, without purpose feeling in your life. We are all in some way looking to, sh- to, to a shock to our emotions. And at times we want to spike our heart rate and hormones and adrenaline from all kind of experience sexually or physically and, and, and emotionally and being full, you know, not just on a regular extra value meal, but we have to be oversatisfied by eating it supersized with an apple pie. He's saying it's when full is not enough. Or the feeling of of, of starving or or working your body out uh, to a smaller size. Having that kind of real disciplined, satisfied feeling of being thinner and skinnier and more cut and buff. That, 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 That feeling, that sensation. It's the drive of substance abuse. Looking for the rest and calm of, of your life in a pretty crazy world. So, so just take a smoke of this or drag on this or drink of this or sniff of this, an injection or capsule or maybe another brew of beans or, or hops that will either take you above or below the edge. And he extends these motivations by adding this. Not only the lust of the body or the flesh, but he says here next, the lust of the eyes. What is he talking about? He's talking about looking good. He's talking about looking beautiful, looking disciplined, looking together, looking orderly, looking rich, looking acceptable to everyone else. Not living above criticism, but looking good above criticism. You know, your life is a pursuit of having no cracks and no flaws or or not being regular by all means. You know, you have this bling bling cleanliness, a, a, a bling bling value to life, having those things that make you Look good. It's that whole culture we're in of extreme makeover. You know, this enamoring culture of skinniness or, or cutness or, or, or whateverness that, that drives us to plastic surgery or, 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 or other 
nutso things that we do, that, that stuff that makes us, you know, real tense about when or whether people come over to our house because we can't be caught looking bad by all means. I know you're suffering. I know you want to take the whole thing of pills. I know you need me. I know you're on the edge, but I got to go. You can't come over. My house ain't clean right now. It's the kind of stuff that makes you hide what your family is really like. What your marriage is really like. Now, I, 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 you know, we talked about cynicism. I'm trying not to be cynical. But if you look too good, oh boy. It might just be a show. Sometimes if it looked too good, it might just be a Broadway production. I mean, you might deserve an Oscar or Tony more than... A true, wow, this is pretty good. I just, you know, you look like the perfect family, the perfect wife, oh man, the perfect student. Oh, you studious. Man, I've done that. Going to the library trying to look like you're doing some work. You, you just want to look like you're smart. I'm going in there. I ain't doing no work. Getting online, looking at Clemson page. I mean, I'm just, just looking good, y'all. You know how you can tell? You don't have that many talks with people about your real life. Nobody's ever been in your life or in your house when it isn't together. Or when you can kind of, it's, it, it's not only like a messy house, it's like a messy conversation. You know, the only time you're ready to bring your stuff forward is when you kind of got your points in order. Do, 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 do. I know what I'm going to say, do, 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 do. A, B, C. Okay, I'm going to tell you what's wrong with me. Number one, do, 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 do. and you just got it together. It's that thing that pulls people in when we want to have a fake relationship with them and pushes those away that may bring us out or bring us down. And this motivation and longing is inseparable from the final one in this trifecta of lust. It's boasting. It's pride. Now the translation would include ambition, haughtiness, uppiness, uppiness, snootiness. And John is saying, if you are an achievement freak, you love the world and the love of God is not in you. That is, you're always looking at the corner office or invitation to higher society. Your kid has to go to this school to increase the social level of your and his contacts. You have to live in this neighborhood to feel worth something or normal. And that's who John is talking about. I mean, how can I say it? This is about real estate, reputation, and recognition. And what's sad is I can sum it all up by saying this. John is telling us, don't be like Charlotte. Don't be like Charlotte. Ambitious, right? To be the bigger, better, richer, you know, to look like a world-class city. Oh, we want to be New York so bad, we're second to them in like three categories. Oh my goodness. And we're like that individually recalled in this city. We are newbies trying to connect with old money with new jobs. Affluent, real estate addicted, but protected by the false shield of godly southern capitalism. You know, don't be about this city and its motivations. Don't be taken in by it to cover up in its religious clothing. Don't get caught in its world-class rat race. Don't be motivated by its incredible opportunity to be rich and known to, to possibly be the pastor of the next uh, greatest mega church. You know, you're out there trying to rebuild from the ashes of a three-letter religious empire that fell some time ago. 
in this city. Man, the conservative evils are on speed. You know, there is this new unchecked slavery, this this new wealth, this new power, this new residence in old places. Let's take a warehouse and empty it out, make something great and charge high for it. You know, it's plenty of ways to come out looking like a minivan SU driving Mother Teresa. In this city, liberal ambition is like crack. I mean... At every turn, there is so much fake conservatism, kind of this churchy backside. You can just give a big spank with your liberal paddle that can ultimately make you look like the next Gandhi of Uptown. You can be ambitious whether you're a liberal conservative city because the city has yet to be humbled by anything that really makes it have any character. Let a hurricane hit. Let a tornado. Let Bank of America move on to Massachusetts. Let me tell you. Character. In Charlotte, private schools and country clubs and banks and exclusive malls and credit and acclaim and houses and drugs and sexually free relationships, desperate to be something, journalism and unprotected poor people are for your taking and liking and lovering and covering and capitalizing. And that's whether you're a banker, an artist, a teacher, a nonprofit, stay-at-home mom or pastor. Dare I say it about this Bible Belt city? According to John, authentic Christianity, the love of the Father is wanting in Charlotte and not wanted enough. Because we love the world in this city, y'all. We love it. Oh, you can be a Christian and love it, too. Oh, I love it. Oh, it's great. And our motivations in and, and for and, and from such things declare a mission of what? Of self-security. We can see what is common to all these things itself. It's a life mission of taking care of number one, of rather sadly having to take care of nobody else but number one that we can't see our hearts can't embrace a concept beyond taking care of ourselves making ourselves feel good securing our own self sense of worth fighting for our own sense of rightness declaring our own right to be here and live here and love here and feel here on earth and our final mission our final goal whether we want to hear it or believe it or not is ourselves you I, me, because you truly, the world tells you truly, that's all you got. Is you. There's no hope. So find yourself, yeah, do it. Find yourself in the right company. Put yourself in the right clothes. Defend yourself with a good reputation, a good looks. As a matter of fact, don't be yourself, you know? Be more about the garnish and the gravy and the wrappings. You know, the commercial of yourself is better than the real product. And please, don't admit emptiness and defeat and purposelessness or cover it, feed it, overstimulate it beyond reality. But by all means, don't let the real you have to be cared for or known or revealed or suffer or shudder or shake because in this world there is no comfort or care beyond what you and I can muster. That's the thinking of the world. And now it makes sense 
why John tells us in verse 15 that a person motivated and missioned in this way does not have the love of the Father. Because preoccupation with self, cover-up, self-feeding, self-feeling, jockeying for position, carrying with it. You know what your life says? And here's the part about the message. You know what the message of your life says? We are alone down here. No one cares for us. So we have to care for ourselves. We gotta get, we can get now. I gotta feel it now. I gotta know it now. I gotta, you know, I gotta contend now. I need to be number one. We have to make, make it big to be accepted. We have to be something to stop from being treated or believing like we're nothing. When we live according to the lust of this world, we say we are orphans. We're homeless. We're fatherless. God doesn't exist. This is what the world says, or really exists to love us. He's not real or really in love with us or cares for us. I mean, even in, in, in this version of Christianity, I see, it's like God has given us, you know, it's more, de, you know, deism. It's like, you know, God's going to wind us up and, and he's kind of given us the Christian manifesto and we're going to charge for it and we can have everything we want and because we work hard to get it and all this kind of mess. But what did it say? God, what does it still say? God? It's not really involved here. He, man, ain't nobody going to care for me but me. Especially, who's going to care for the real me underneath all of this fluff? We live as though we have no home to go to. No arms to run into. No one's coming to find us. No one sees us. No one speaks to us with any kind of tender concern. No one sees our cares or cares to hear our stories or is even moved by the sound of our voices. And so the stuff we have, the status we can get, fake or not, the life we have made for ourselves in the world feels like that's all we got. That this world is it. It is a God-loveless place. So John makes sense here. That if you're not a child of God, that if you are a child of God, rather, a believer, one who knows or claims to know the love of the Father, you live as though you have a heavenly Father and a home and a hope. And so to believer and unbeliever and all those who feel they are somewhere in between, his message is this. And all that you want and all that life in this world has to offer, you and I have not wanted enough. You've not wanted enough. And all you're getting and posturing and pretending and seeking, you have not sought or wanted enough. Because the gospel says that while our motivations and our missions and our own self-missions fail us or fade on us or even die with us, God's motivation and mission and message over and against our own is calling and claiming us as his children out of the cold, out of a lonely world to himself. It is the gospel message to those who think the world is the only way they can be loved. Have you not heard the gospel? Or forgotten it? Look with me at verse 17. It says clearly, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, 
Yeah, it's true. If you do the will of God, live forever. But we shortchange the picture if we only once again see what we're able to accomplish for ourselves. All right, I want everlasting life. All right, sign me up for it. Where's the class? Give me the rules. I can do it. Got it going on. I'm from Charlotte. We can handle it. I want to be the world-class everlasting life guy, too. (laughs) No, this is about what Jesus coming in the flesh has gotten, ultimately. And we get to, as we live in and trust and give the hope of our lives to him, what is he saying? Jesus has won eternal life in real life, full life, what I call that pure OT life, O2 life, life, breath, hope, relationship above just self and stuff and body. It is ours because Jesus did the will of the Father. What this means is that if we look at the sacrifice of Jesus for us, while we may be motivated by our own standing and our own bodies or whether we're full or whether we're satisfied or whether we're tantalized enough or or whether whatever Jesus came to be humiliated, it is ours because of what he did towards you. It counters and says Jesus came to be humiliated and mutilated to become a slave and a servant a lamb to be slain which means his motivations was that you and I would stand in true righteousness not in that made up pride not in that thing you can buy for yourself and be gone tomorrow not that job they can move to another country or to another state no he's saying Jesus came to be humiliated and his motivation was you Wow, you don't have to care for you? No, there's a God whose motivation is you. Wow. God, you... These crazy folk down here, me, being one of them, you're motivated by God. What does he do? You're standing. We all trying to... Climb the ladder for attention and and security and and he's saying you're standing before God over his. On his. The salvation of your body at his body's expense. His death for your eternal life. All the things you really are trying to get to that you can't get for yourself. He is saying let me suffer. Let me not get. Let me be called a fool and, and, and defamed in character. So that you and I can stand in glory. In a heaven one day. In a mansion. In a, in a full, free, everlasting life with God. While you and I. I try to be something we are not, he was called and treated like a hoodlum, a has-been, a wannabe, a fool. And the mission is clear. That you and I could be children of God. Man, we trying to be that family. We trying to connect with this society and these people. And Jesus is saying this. I have come so that you can be a part of heaven's family. God's child. I'm not talking about the the CEO of Bank of America, Wachovia. I'm talking about the Lord, 
the God, creator of the universe, the one who, who owns everything you, ha- you see down here. Jesus' mission was that you can be a part of that and not in your own strivings, not according to your own lust, but according to his love for you. No longer. He's trying to get us to a point where we're no longer having to be concerned about caring for and securing life for ourselves. Hope for ourselves. Because in Jesus, you get a father. A heavenly father. A daddy of all of Charlotte. And all of this is yours. And, and one who loves you unconditionally. Now I'm going to have to go back. I didn't put this in the, in, in the scripture. But hear what it says on John, the beginning of chapter 2, that kind of carries through the rest of the passage. It says this, My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay, this is chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Not sin. In other words, love the world stuff. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The message is clear. You don't have to love the world. Because in Jesus, you can now love a God who loves you. You don't have to be loved by a world whose love is fleeting and and can shut down on you or or change styles or or, or change locations. No, he's saying you don't have to love or you don't have to hide yourself or pretend or cover up or be ambitious or be afraid of failure. In Jesus, your God, your father, your daddy, the one whose eye matters the most, covers failure with forgiveness and soothes the fire of ambition with unconditional love. You don't have to love the world because God has loved you the world it's clear over and against our own world's message what is John saying we are not alone that this is all there is that God does not care down here that that you got to get yours your reputation your dreams your good feelings in the first chapter he says this is not the case there is one in the first chapter, he talks about it. There is one who came to your world in the flesh. God came in Jesus in the flesh to be touched and heard and seen and looked at. And, you know, all the senses. And what was he saying? The world is not alone having to care for itself. I've come. My blood was really shed. Real blood dripped from my body. I really was on the cross. God really came. And the message is really, this this really thing is truly, this authentic, touchable belief. It's true. Jesus came into the world for real, to really bring you eternal life and unconditional love of the Father. You and I are not alone. We're not left trying to get that last bone, if you will. We're not alone having to try to make ourselves look good. We're not alone trying to build this fake group of friends around us. 
Bible says this, God came in Jesus and in the relationships even of his body, the church and his people, its word, its prayer, its fellowship, you are seen and heard and have been spoken to by God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish fade away like the world stuff shall not fade in their belief that they can be something shall not fade away and hoping that this job or this money or this neighborhood or this contact or whatever it is is going to please you shall not perish with the world but have everlasting life God so loved the world Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the trappings are incredible. It's hard to say no. It's hard to even know our hearts in it. It's crazy. We're so wrapped up. We want to be something. We want to have something. We want to be rich. We want to be secure. We want to be known and and respected and have good reputation, Lord. And and, and we don't want anybody to find out about our weak parts. Oh, Lord, please. It's so hard, Jesus. We need the real Jesus who sent the real Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and make this gospel message live for us. Help us to believe that we're not alone. Help us to believe that we covered and stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Help us to believe that Jesus really came and bought a heavenly destiny and a home and unconditional love that begins here on earth and is everlasting, that goes for all eternity, that we grow in love and fellowship with a heavenly Father that has not left us or forsaken us or been blind to us or been deaf to us. Help us to believe, God, that you so love this world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.